This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think a lot about evolving consumer trends and, you know, Gen Z, Gen Alpha. I'm like the middle of millennialness, And um, we just have a lot more education about products and a whole flood of products constantly coming at us. And so it, I think it always goes back to, um, you know, how does this product make you feel? Um, from an external perspective and internal perspective um, and how much do you love the brand um, to want to be associated by it? Um, Cause everything in the U S is very consumer capitalism driven. But um, you know, I, I, I think that um, you know, cannabis is cannabis is already taking market share from alcohol um, in a lot of states, cannabis taxes are superseding alcohol taxes. So from an economic impact standpoint, you know, the U.S. had $30 billion uh, of uh, sales last year, but the measurement of economic impact was $90 billion. So, um, you know, there's, there's a growing kind of ripple effect of it's got to, it's got to, if, if you're not drinking, you know, booze and you're going out and drinking something, what's it going to be? Hey, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Please note that all content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Our guest today is Helene Servillian, founder of Journey One Ventures. Journey One Ventures is a 100% woman and minority owned early stage fund that invests in billion dollar opportunities in misunderstood markets that are highly regulated and fragmented. We focus our conversation on investing in cannabis companies and the different regulations that are around cannabis and why the opportunity today is more on the infrastructure side rather than investing in cannabis brands. Without further ado, here's Helene. Helene, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Indeed. Happy Friday. Um, so I want to start a little bit at like the beginning. Like what why did you decide to go from B2B tech and telecom to the world of, of cannabis and, and VC? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, I entered the cannabis industry late 2017, early 2018. Uh, impactful year because um, that is when California turned from a medicinal market in 1996 to an adult use recreational market in 2018. And um, California was the first state in the U.S. to actually medically legalize cannabis. Um, and Colorado was the first state to uh, legalize it on adult use level. And I grew up in San Francisco, which is a wonderful, magical, unique, eclectic city that um, has a pretty big weed culture. Um, and actually, the, the, the smartest kids in my high school, we, we called them... Uh, <laughs> Well, they were technically stoners, but they call, they they were like the wall kids. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, the same stigma that a lot of people grew up with the plant. And so um, when I was working in enterprise tech, I really wanted to um, get my chops in the venture capital world. I spent my 20s working as an early stage operator in emerging industries and, um you know, when you're in startup landia, you always understand that, like, you know, VCs play important power uh, in your company, you know, if you're raising capital, getting to that next level. So I really wanted to understand how the finance side of business worked. And as I was like trying to figure out, you know, where would I specialize? How would I brand myself and kind of start my career adventure? Um, the timing of cannabis was really um, the best intersection for me. So um, that is a quick high-level view of, of where I started, but I would say that I specialize really in highly regulated and misunderstood markets um, in emerging industries. So even before I was in an enterprise tech, I was in the light electric vehicle industry um, for five years before bike shares hit the ground in uh, New York and San Francisco and started to get really into how do you how do you reframe the way that people think about products um, and services and kind of get them in the mainstream. So it's a little bit of a against the grain thinking. How did you think about because I, I would say like some of these categories, um, they're quote unquote labeled like vice categories, right? That like a lot of kind of VCs don't invest in. Um how did you think when you were raising Fund One for Journey One Ventures, how did you think about building your LP network? What did, um, was there kind of a lot of like block just because um, due to like the categories that you were interested in investing in? Um, or what was that kind of like just the whole fundraise? That's a great question. Um, you know, so technically speaking, a lot of institutional capital allocators like endowments, pension funds, anything that is like federal touching money, um, they just don't invest in cannabis because most LPAs like limited partnership agreements, which is the agreements that, you know, investors sign to invest in venture funds there, they have vice clauses, which is what cannabis sits under. But um, so, so most funds are actually backed by family offices and high net worth individuals. And in states where cannabis is legal, there are circumstances where institutional capital allocators invest in, um, in the industry. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a big challenge, but it's also a massive opportunity, right? And so that's, that's where I saw um, kind of a window to beat the traditional investors. Like I'm not competing against Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia Capital, you know, USV. 
um, they can't touch the industry right now. So it does it does create a big advantage for fund managers that are willing to take you know early risk in the sector. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I'd imagine then on like the um, supply side of capital, there's then since there is you know as you say like these vice clauses that that exist with a lot of I'd imagine like the majority of of venture capital funds that um, on the supply side um, that, you know, you're, you're going to have demand when it comes to cannabis companies that, that, that need company that, that need money, but on the supply side of capital, it's not as much, it's, it's not there um, or it's, or it's, um, or, or it's limited uh, due to like the vice clause and, and what have you. And so there is like a bit of a mismatch there as well, which I'm sure that actually you can, that falls into your favor. Yeah, I mean, it makes it an investor's market, right? If there's fewer investors and a limited capital um, in the sector, you you also have to have like a really sharp eye for how to look at companies. And we can go into you know how we develop our thesis. But I think on the topic of vice, it it's important because I know you cover so many different consumer related industries, CPG, whatnot, um, to reframe how people think about cannabis. I think it's a it's a high value crop. It's a plant that has medicinal, wellness, and recreational applications. Um, when you think about vices like alcohol, people don't, you know, they don't heal. Well, I think people can, you know, drink alcohol to kind of take the edge off the day, but it's not good for your body. Um, and so, I always tell investors like, you don't have to be a cannabis consumer to to understand and love what it does for other people. So from a medical application, you know, there's um, use cases for epilepsy, Parkinson's, early research on dementia. Um, Pfizer, for example, has a acquired a clinical stage company that uses cannabis compounds for uh, gastrointestinal um, disorders. And GW Pharma, um, you know, they were the first to develop epilepsy uh, with cannabinoids. And so you know, there's a whole history that I don't know if we'll have time to go into the podcast around, you know, how this plant has been demonized for a lot of racial kind of um, uh, perspectives from politics back in the day during Reagan time. I mean, certainly. I mean, you even you even look at like what, you know, tobacco, like tobacco does not, you know, isn't isn't good for you either. Right. Comparing it to, uh, to alcohol and it's and it's and it's also legalized. And yet, you know, uh, cannabis is the one that kind of gets um, a lot of flack um, about how it's different. So, um, no, I mean, 100 100 percent agree with you there. And I think a lot of people are probably wondering, you know, what makes cannabis a unique market to invest into? And um, I think that highly regulated and fragmented markets are ripe for a lot of venture opportunity. So our industry can't use Visa, MasterCard, Amex, PayPal um, for payments. We can't use FedEx or USPS for shipping product. Um, We can't advertise on Facebook or Google. Um, Now that Twitter is private, actually, uh, Twitter is allowing um, cannabis advertisements um, and, and we'd have no access to federal banks. Most banks that bank cannabis companies are state credit unions. Um, and uh, so because of all of that, we actually need customized software and uh, infrastructure for this double digit billion dollar industry to operate. Um, and so that is a sector which we specialize in is really um, 
investing in the infrastructure and technology and IP that powers the plant-based wellness industries. And so our fund one is really focused on cannabis. We see it as a great go-to-market that's disrupting the alcohol industry, consumer packaged goods, pharma. Um, and, uh, you know, we're kind of starting to ideate, you know, how do we evolve into fund two? But uh, we've really built a team that knows the industry inside and out. You know, cannabis also isn't legal in all states, as you as you say. How do you think about regulation when it comes to cannabis and maybe paying attention in, ter- in terms of the legal side, in terms of when the laws actually change? Yeah. So, I mean, what what makes what's going to make this market boom even further um, is federal legalization. Um, and there's a lot to unpack in there. I'll start from the basis of where we're at today. So that we have 41 states in the U.S., that have legalized medical use cannabis. And how the rollout of regulation works is that a state goes medical, um, and then afterwards, you know, they vote to push it to go into adult use, which is, um, uh, you know, 21 plus. And so um, 80% of the U.S. population has access to cannabis. And... um, there's uh, a handful of, of big le- legislations, which is the Safe Banking Act. It's actually, um, there's a bill going to the Senate right now. Um, there's bipartisan support from Chuck Schumer. And what that would enable is, um, uh, you know, federal access to federal banking and small business loans um, to cannabis companies. And so right now it's that it's really challenging to be, you know, a mom and pop shop in cannabis when capital is restricted and you have no assets to loan against, um, and you don't have access to typical small business loans. Um, so we're seeing like a really big discrepancy being created between enterprise companies in the industry, and you're at like mom and pop shops because it's hard for them to raise early stage capital. Majority of that capital is equity. Um, it's hard to get debt. And uh, so that's the Safe Banking Act. And, um, you know, Biden came out last November with support to um, decriminalize cannabis on a federal level, um, which is something that um, Vice President um, you know Harris really supported when she was going through her debates. Um, it's very tricky. I think everyone in the industry is always optimistic. People who work in cannabis are extremely resilient. It's not an easy industry to work in. Um, And it could be a curveball, you know, I think with elections coming up and enterprise cannabis companies having more lobbying dollars, things shift really fast. Um, Some super conservative politicians like um, Mitch McConnell and John Boehner are both cannabis boys now. And, you know, you track the dollars where they come from. They have a lot of friends in the cotton and tobacco industries. And so it is, you know. I think uh, the stronger cannabis companies get, the bigger our lobbying dollars get um, and influence. But to address when will federal legalization happen is a big question mark. I mean, earliest, maybe two years, longest, TBD. Um, I think everyone's hoping for it. And that's, you know, that's what I'm playing for from a fund investment side, because um, I look at cannabis as an M&A market rather than an IPO market. And the intersection of that consolidation and those mergers are going to come from 
alcohol, tobacco, big pharma, you know, Johnson and Johnson. Um, people talk about cannabis nowadays and we'll get even nerdier and talk about cannabinoids, which is, uh, you know, the future of what this plant can unlock from a product standpoint. No, that's, that's really, that's really helpful from a, from a timing perspective. And, and when you think about your thesis, cause you said it, you know, it could happen, uh, federally legalization of uh, cannabis in the next, let's say, um, two years if we're thinking optim- uh, optimistically. But from a timing perspective, how does what's happening legislation-wise, and not just the U.S., maybe on a global scale, how does that in different countries, um, as, as different countries are also legalizing cannabis, how does that impact where you should kind of spend your time and what you should spend your time on? Sure. So um, our fund is primarily focused on North America investment, so Canada and U.S. Um, Canada's market is smaller than California's market. Um, we have the same population. Um, you know, uh, California probably did roughly around 10 bill last year um, or maybe just under it. And um, not sure what latest Canada numbers are, but they're definitely not eclipsing that. And so with figuring out where do we geographically focus, um, it's really hard to keep up with 41 states um, and their different regulatory bodies. You open up that to the world and it's like, you know, your brain can go sideways. Um, But I'm actually spending time in Europe this summer, uh, specifically in Germany and Switzerland, because Germany is uh, a medical medical country. And the way that they've rolled out cannabis is actually super interesting because very different than the United States. Um, but they are, you know, around the edge of, um, legalizing cannabis recreationally. And I think that will influence what the U S does. Um, you know, people respect Germans in business. I used to work with a ton I'm, I'm very curious to figure out what's going to happen on the ground there and how it's going to create a domino effect for other markets, specifically in Europe, as well as the US. That's really interesting about how you're thinking about it in terms of when a country opens up, maybe when it comes to cannabis has become legalized, then you actually need to spend your time that you that, that actually can can dictate part of the time in terms of where to actually spend your time, um, as we might see a, a, a bit of a boom when it comes to cannabis companies. Yeah, no, I was I was just going to say, I mean, if you think about how like certain continents and influences work, you know, G- Germany is a strong GDP power in Europe. Um, and because I've, you know, pretty early on in the U.S. market, we have a lot of data points of like how markets roll out. Every country is fundamentally different, but, um, you know, there's infrastructure and a a lot of technology and software that needs to power these industries. Um, And so that's, we kind of look for, you know, what, what are the building blocks for this market to get off the ground? And what do we see as potential venture scalable investments within that ecosystem? Can we, can we talk a little bit about what venture scalable as well kind of means to you? I know that, um, I know that when you say you see this more so as an M&A market over a um, IPO market, I presume you mean on the actual 
um, cannabis, um, the actual like cannabis brand, so to speak, like the CPG side to cannabis, right? Or do you also, or do you also think of that in terms of like the the technology side too and the infrastructure? I I think of it on both sides. Um, like I mentioned before, right? Like what makes cannabis a unique market is that we are handcuffed from using um, other software systems like Shopify, Block. Um, and payment processors. And so, you know, there's a handful of companies that will go global, um, both CPG and software. Um, and then there's a handful of companies that, you know, will just be like country specific. But when I, you know, Uber, for example, has launched in Canada, um, and uh, they are absolutely looking for how do they play in the U.S. market upon federal legalization, but they're not going to move until that happens. And so I think the best opportunities are going to be mergers and acquisitions. And, you know, there will there are publicly traded cannabis companies uh, mainly listed on the um, Canadian exchange, a few listed on the NASDAQ and um my bet is that there will probably be around like five to six tech giants in cannabis at most. Um, and then the rest will be consolidation. So if I start there, then if I say, you know, I'm not really shooting for the potential billion dollar exits, that would be really nice. I think that's every fund manager's dream. I won't complain about a unicorn or a decacorn. Um, but then that drives kind of where we start. So that's why we're very focused on seed stage investments. If I can get in on that $5 million valuation um, or sub 10, and I'm, you know, underwriting for a quarter billion, half a billion dollar exit, you know, those are good multiples um, for a fund. And so we, we have, we do a handful of gross stage investments outside of the fund. Um, but because I see the market being an M&A market, um, playing early is key. How then do you think about how a cannabis company um, or any one of your companies should be capitalized? Because, you know, if you're going for a quarter of a billion, half a billion type outcome, then if you go on like the normal kind of venture um, venture uh, wheel, um, you keep raising and raising and raising, then eventually like that actually probably like you're 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 probably not going to get like generate like that that great return because it's because you're trying to market as as a as a potential unicorn as we say so how do you think about like like capitalization when you actually start talk to founders I, I think it depends on the business model so to, to back it up even further what kind of cannabis companies are out there right so we have brands cultivation um, licensed distributors who move product from cultivators to you know, manufacturers then package product and then bring it to retailers. Um, and then, you know, there are brands that are vertically integrated. So they own their entire infrastructure and then have their brand or they're just like asset light brands that just, you know, in traditional CPG, they use a co-manufacturer and whatnot. Um, so there's, uh, you know, real estate side of cannabis and then we have software um, which is the entire stack. So that we have seed to sale uh, providers. We have B2B wholesale marketplaces, uh, B2B to B2C marketplaces, um, you know, similar to like Amazon and such. 
it depends on capital efficiency of the business. For a plant touching business, for example, um, they can't. There, we have a law called 280E, and you can't under you can't under um, you can't expense you can't do federal expenses. Makes it challenging for cannabis companies to be more profitable. Um, so that's one challenge. You know, cultivation can be a cash cow business. Um, if there are limited number of cultivators in the market, you can, can really control price. Once the market starts to issue more licenses, supply and demand dynamics start to evolve, right? So I, your question is a really good one, but it really is dependent upon the business model and you know what type of cash is needed. So I think kind of going into our thesis in the market, um, you know, on our, our prep call, I talked about, you know, every quarter we have to evolve with the market. It's moving so fast. Each state creates a different ripple effect. And so, um, you know, capital efficiency is super important for net new investments that we're making um, because capital is hard to raise in the holistic venture environment right now. So we, we want to make sure that we're not funding businesses that, you know, are five years from first check revenue, which be more of like biotech deals and life science deals and cannabis. Um, and that, you know, all of our current portfolio companies, the ones who haven't hit profitability were, you know, controlling costs and then trying to optimize of how do we get to break even profitable, um, so, you know, I think it also depends on just like the capital markets in general, like, you know, cash was pretty easy to raise two years ago post pandemic, and now we're in a crunch. And so a lot of companies are going back to let's stay lean, low burn, um, and survive this dynamic. Because, you know, a few years ago, everyone had this thesis of like, let's grow at all cost, But and let's grow at all costs in, in preparation for federal legalization. Now that's kicked out a bit. The strategy has to change to the market dynamics. No, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. And I, I appreciate you mentioning how, obviously, how like the federal reg- regulation ties into all of this and it being, um, okay, like, like we can't, like, like okay, maybe we thought that that fe- federal regulation was going to come quicker. Let's try to rev up, and then it, and that maybe that wasn't the case. So then we have to actually kind of think about how do we think about profitability and not like a growth at all cost mentality. And of course, as you say, like we we saw like a bit of a growth of, growth at all cost mentality over the past few years, and what seemed like you know every kind of venture backable or 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 what presumed to be venture backable um, uh, category. And so of course the market now has changed um, across that landscape as we've seen like a lot of companies um, having to uh, having to deal with that and making a lot of tough decisions. You mentioned how, um, I remember we talked about this before about how your thesis, you, you kind of have to check in on your thesis every quarter because it could constantly evolve. Can you give a couple examples of, of different, um, it could be regulation or just different things happening that um, that that really had to maybe change your change your thesis or or what you thought about uh, cannabis. Yeah. So when I became an investor in the industry in 2018, probably around like 20 states were medically legalized. Then at least half. It's doubled now. 
Um, so we have, uh, I mentioned 41 states legalized, um, including DC and then 22 rec states. Um, and there's, now we have a mix of mature and nascent markets. When I first got started, everything was pretty nascent. And, and um, in cannabis, there is no interstate commerce in the U.S. What that means is that if you make product in California, it must be sold in California. You cannot sell that product in Nevada. And so, um, and, and then infrastructure, for example, in California wasn't really built out in full yet. What I mean by that is that if you wanted to create a brand back in like, you know, 2017, 2019 days, you had to vertically integrate because you didn't necessarily have a cultivator, a distributor, a manufacturer, or a retailer to sell your brand. To even sell your brand, you had to build that infrastructure. Um, And so, um, you know, a lot of early investors in cannabis made bets on those companies. And it's great because you can control a lot of profit margin because you're, you know, you're, you're in the entire supply chain. The challenge is that it's super expensive, a lot of capex, right? And so those early, it, it was really expensive to build the infrastructure of the industry. And now it's cheaper, much cheaper to launch a brand where, you know, it can be asset light. Um, and so, you know, if I make Helene's brownies, I can just, uh, I can just um, sell packaging, manage the sales and marketing and then have a manufacturer buy all of my, um, you know, build materials and package that. And I just run sales, field sales, retail sales, um, and they handle that supply chain. If I want to be in all 41 states across the U.S., I need to manage 41 concurrent supply chains. It's a lot of work. If you're, you know, healthy kombucha, you probably have one co-man in the U.S., maybe two distributors, East Coast, West. Um, so, you know, the, it, it is really challenging to, to manage um, a, a multi-state, we call it multi-state cannabis brands. And then multi-state operators are what we call like the enterprise companies in the cannabis industry, most of which are vertically integrated and then sometimes asset light in some states. Is it more challenging now to pinpoint which are the brands you want to invest in? Because um, it is easier. It's not, it's, you don't, you don't need to vertically integrate, right? You can just control like the marketing and sales side. Yeah, it was a great question. It's like, um, I think we talk about like, how many more water companies do we need? I mean, massive TAM and water, but like, come on, like, I get it. Different form factor of packaging. I love the Tetra Pak. <laughs> love box water. That's a cool company. Uh, but that's the same of how some cannabis companies are differentiating is really packaging customer, um, you know, customer alignment. Um, and so, you know, we have two consumer investments in the fund. Um, we, we are still bullish on beverage. Um, the timeline for that, you know, is questionable um, of when it's going to pop. But I think from a consumer level, I love beverage. And then we also invested in plant people, uh, which is a non-THC touching, um, more like supplemental wellness brand. They started at hemp, but they've grown into um, functional mushrooms um, and distributed through Whole Foods, Target. 
Um, so that was when we first launched the fund in 2021, uh, was our first deployment of October. And then we have seven portfolio companies. At that point, consumer was still appetizing. But right now, like CPG products are not part of our thesis because one, it's a saturated, you know, sector of the market. Like you said, way easier to build a brand, hard to differentiate why. Um, and so we've leaned more on to, uh, you know, ancillary investments in the cannabis industry. So software, tech, you know, more IP. Infrastructure. Correct infrastructure and everything okay got it got it and that makes sense just because you say like um it's maybe easier now to start a cannabis brand than it used to be really really much maybe harder to um differentiate and so and there's still as you see it like a a ton of opportunity when it comes to on the uh, technology side because the because major players i mean like even just like payments for example like no one wants to get involved or or can't get involved at at this point yeah, and if you if you think about so from a numbers perspective, um, there are sixty six thousand plant touching businesses across the U.S. and roughly around a hundred thousand ancillary. Ancillary could be like service providers, technology consultants, lawyers. Um, so as the number of like brands and companies go up, there's a growing TAM for ancillary, um, you know, companies to service um, that growing TAM. So right now, we probably have close to 8,000 retailers across the U.S. Um, and uh, we have 70 p- point-of-sale systems um, in the industry. Wow. It, it's a ton. Yeah. And, and you have different uh, point-of-sales systems just because it varies per state. Is that right? Some states will say, you know, some of the bigger point-of-sale systems is Dutchie and Trees and Blaze. Um, like I think Pennsylvania voted to have like one point of sale system. And so they encourage people to, you know, use that point of sale system. Um, but for example, when enterprise companies in the industry start to consolidate and, you know, say they're in 20 States, they might be managing like 15 different point of sale systems, which is a lot of fragmented data and maybe like, you know, six to eight different accounting systems. And so as the, as the industry evolves and mature, we try to track, okay, what friction is this creating like in its data? So there's a lot of data fragmentation. Um, you know, as tech investors, we like to make d- data-driven decisions and um, helping companies, you know, utilize their data um, and figure out, you know, what's, what's our pricing strategy you know, what is our customer success and like loyalty strategy um, is super important. So um, as part of our growth within the market, we recently launched uh, JCS, which is Journey One Consulting Services. Pretty cool name. <laughs> and um, we're focused on um, we're focused on building, uh, developing and solving CRM and data problems and tech problems for cannabis enterprises because we see that need. And so by us doing, you know, uh, by us launching this um, consulting side of the business, we can then develop a stronger and deeper hypothesis of what's actually going on within like the biggest, you know, companies in the industry. Um, And uh, hopefully we'll be able to 
sell our portfolio companies faster through those relationships and also figure out what's missing. You know, so when you have fragmented systems, you need middleware to connect those systems. And so that's, you know, an area of the industry that we've been looking at, um, but also need to figure out, you know, is there a big enough market for this software or is it only like a small piece of the pie, even though it solves a critical industry problem? Yeah, no, that's that's really, really interesting. Um, I mean, also, I'd imagine, too, that the majority of sales, right, like I think like 90 percent of sales actually happen in retail, right, and not online because you can't really you, you can't actually sell uh, cannabis or, or maybe you can in like some states. But yes, so direct, direct consumer is not a thing in the industry yet. Um, which I feel like traditional CPG people are like, what, (laughs) what do you mean? I love e-commerce, love more margin. Um, I do too. In California, we have, um, a delivery company that has enabled direct to consumer for brands. So they'll basically be like a headless e-commerce, um, for that brand. So, um, for example, um, so their name's grass store, Kiva is a really big uh, edibles um, brand in California. And if Kiva wants to sell direct and I'm like, hey, Mike, let's buy some edibles. You go to Kiva.com. You know, you can't, they can't have FedEx or USPS ship the product, right? So what Grass Store does is they, you know, are basically like their Shopify on top of their website. And then because they run delivery all across California, they have inventory within their delivery and then they'll deliver for Kiva. Okay. Um, you know, grass store is a licensed delivery operator. So you can't transport cannabis because you're technically touching the plant um, unless you have a license. So you can't actually touch the plant unless you're, uh, unless you actually have a license to, uh, uh, to be able to touch it. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about, you know, where we're at in the industry, of sales are gone through retail. Um, So what that's created with cannabis companies is that there hasn't been a huge need to invest into digital marketing. And so when it comes to like email marketing um, and really creating a strong relationship with your consumers, cannabis companies are kind of like living in like the early 2000s within how they're operating, like within a dominant wholesale market versus digital. Um, so, so we're starting to see this kind of like emergence of, all right, well, what is digital consumption of cannabis going to look like and how is it going to look like and where can we make, make bets in the sector? So we recently invested in a company called Amnesia. They are a content, um, a content, uh, regulatory platform. Instagram is a a very big main channel for cannabis companies to promote product. Um, And if they accidentally um, solicit like the sale of weed, the IG bots will turn that account off and say you have like half a million followers and you're like, what the heck? Like we didn't even know what happened. A junior digital marketing person just posted this and now we have no, no marketing channel. Uh, so Amnesia will scan um, the uh, Instagram posts or content um, and ingest the regulatory data from the social media platform with state-by-state data, uh, 
because different states, for example, Massachusetts, you can't use cartoons in packaging because it solicits the children. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So what, what we like amnesia for is that it solves a massive need in the industry because it, you know, it can be any type of cannabis company, even like a law firm consulting firm that has uh, social media channels. Um, but they can also service other highly regulated industries, such as the sexual wellness industry is not highly regulated, but some of the content within sexual wellness, you know, information can be flagged as like adult entertainment type content. Um, so I have some friends who are fund managers that are like, yeah, you know, we, we invested in Dame. It's, you know, a female like pleasure toy and we've run into this challenge and the alcohol industry has this challenge, um, psychedelics, gaming. Um, so I look at, you know, can this company have legs to service other highly regulated industries outside of cannabis? You know, I'm, I'm curious because you, you see so many different trends have talked to some brilliant minds in the consumer VC sector. Um, from a product standpoint, what are, um, what are your viewpoints on where the alcohol industry is going? Because we had, um, and I don't know if you're a consumer of alcohol, but I think it's, my tagline is that alcohol is boring. <laughs> and uh, there, it's also just like, and I'm getting older, but it just like hurts more every time I enjoy more drinks. And so, you know, from a social standpoint, we have been conditioned to really after hours or like lunch breaks, like, you know, consume alcohol. And I'm kind of thinking, what is the next consumer trend that is going to be the epicenter of like social parties and cultural food, beverage enjoyments? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I actually stopped drinking maybe like seven years ago. And um, I'll have like sips every now and again. Um, if it like, if mm-hmm. if the person says it tastes nice, I just honestly I just can't like I can't like finish a beer anymore. I I, I just like um my my stomach just feels sick. Um I can't like if I order like a cocktail, I just it just I feel like it's honestly just like a waste on me just because I won't be able to actually finish it, but I don't mind the taste, if that makes sense. So I might have like a sip every now and again, but I mean I don't like I don't like drink at home or anything like that. But if I'm out, I might like have like a um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so I, I've, I've really have like stopped drinking pretty much, uh, since like 2015, uh, just because like, I have a pretty weak stomach to be honest with you. Yeah. It sounds like your body stops processing alcohol. Um, and it was just like, Hey, like we may have had this in our early twenties, but now, now it's time to say no, because your body needs to be cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Like it's well, it's that and also like um I love my mornings. I like cherish my mornings. Like I really am like a morning person and I like I'm not a big like stay out late um person and for me like just the days of like being hungover and stuff that like interrupts my mornings ever so slightly. I mean, sometimes in a big way just being really hungover. Like I just hated it. I really like I just it just I would just be so pissed off myself if that makes sense because uh, like I like to like go and like do stuff like go for hikes and stuff and so that was also like part of the reason why in terms of the next consumer trend like in terms of like will what will replace if something will replace alcohol I mean 
I think it's a good question. You know, there's a lot of hype around non-alk um, brands in that trend. Like, fu- I mean, fu- funny enough for me, just from my own personal experience, like I don't actually drink non-alk brands, even though I don't um, drink alcohol. I've tried non-alk brands. I think it's good, but um, personally, I just, I just don't. I just will just have water, like sparkling water. I'm just very, very boring. But in terms of like an escape, like definitely, definitely a lot of conversation about can like cannabis be that kind of escape that that people are looking for originally from alcohol, right? I mean, obviously, it's a very different experience, cannabis uh, versus alcohol. But uh, but yeah, what what are your kind of thoughts on that? Before I move into answering that question, I had this idea that came out like, wouldn't it be cool if we had an algorithm that could predict the cost to shift consumer habits? Like if you think about like, you know, how much money alcohol has spent in making it a cultural norm over the last like century and a half, like, and how much money, you know, a new category is going to have to spend. Like, for example, when seltzers came off, right? Like White Claw, like really kind of pioneered that market along with like Truly. Yeah. And everybody rode that wave on the back end, but didn't have to spend as much money on marketing and attracting those consumers. But that would be a really good investment to have a bot. <laughs> Just tell me, how much money is this going to take for me to create a category? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about evolving consumer trends and, you know, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, I'm like the middle of millennialness. And um, we just have a lot more education about products and a whole flood of products constantly coming at us. And so I think it always goes back to, um, you know, how does this product make you feel? Um, from an external perspective and internal perspective um, and how much do you love the brand um, to want to be associated by it? Um, Cause everything in the U S is very consumer capitalism driven. But um, you know, I, I, I think that um, you know, cannabis is cannabis is already taking market share from alcohol Um, in a lot of states, cannabis taxes are superseding alcohol taxes. So from an economic impact standpoint, you know, the U S had 30 billion, uh, of, uh, sales last year, but the measurement of economic impact was 90 billion. So, um, you know, there's, there's a growing kind of ripple effect of it's gotta, it's gotta, if, if you're not drinking, you know booze and you're going out and drinking something what's it gonna be right and 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 you always well not always but um like you know you still want that escape right some some type of escape um what's that gonna be is it gonna be you know alcohol could it be another another type of drug what will that be and so um i i do think that's like a, a, a obviously like we're not the first to, to, to ask these questions but like um it's definitely like a very interesting question for sure yeah. And I think, um, you know, we're starting to participate in the psychedelics sector, um, which is going to be a whole different, whole different ecosystem. And we can talk high level about the differences between cannabis and psychedelics um, because they are fundamentally different, especially from an investor's point of view. You know, I think I think psychedelics is starting to bleed into urban culture. I'm seeing it in cities like L.A., New York. SF, I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but that's also uh, another contender. Yeah. How do you, how do you approach 
investing in psychedelics today? Yeah. So just like, you know, how we started in cannabis, you have to look at the evolution of a market um, once it becomes regulated because it's been underground, you know, for quite some time. Um, Psychedelics is really taking a medical pathway um, to market. Um, And so right now, a lot of it is drug development, kind of IP uh, and early stages of infrastructure um, within clinics is what they call them. Um, So they're roughly around 500 ketamine clinics in the U.S. And um, ketamine is um, uh, a compound, a psychedelic compound that you can get prescribed by a doctor. Um, You can do it digitally. You can do it in person. Um, And we recently invested, not through the fund, but through a side vehicle into MAPS, which is the Multiple Dysonary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And um, they are kind of in phase three clinicals of um, MDMA-AT, which stands for um, assisted therapy for the use case of PTSD. Um, And so, uh, you know, next year... MDMA, uh, upon them completing phase three clinicals, DA will deschedule um, MDMA, which is going to be a pretty big evolution within the psychedelics industry. That's great. That's great. So what does that mean once that happens? Well, it won't be federally banned. And so um, therapists that distribute that compound and are trained and taught how to distribute the compound, you know, won't have to face um, criminal charges if they're doing it within the confines of, of how they should be distributing that drug. Um, so, you know, from a regulatory perspective, um, the way that a lot of um, municipalities have been legalizing or decriminalizing psychedelics has typically been on a city by city level. Um, so Oakland, Portland, Denver, um, all have initiatives to decrim uh, psychedelics, but Colorado is the first state in the U.S. to decriminalize it on a statewide level. And the heritage of cannabis has kind of kind of set that base layer of advocacy groups and support systems that are also, you know, involved in the psychedelics industry. So a lot of my friends, they um, run a law firm. They worked on a lot of the pro bono work, but they're all cannabis industry people. So different, different ways of how these businesses, um, you know, psychedelics is mainly lifestyle and biotech right now, um, unlike cannabis, which is really following that consumer pathway. But a lot of the same people are coming from both industries. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? One book that has inspired me personally, you know, I'm going to... Um, do a pivot. Um, to be totally honest, I'm not a huge book reader. I love podcasts. I'm a visual and audio learner through and through. Okay. I recently started listening to this Australian podcaster. I don't even know her name, but the podcast is called Do You Fucking Mind? Usually a podcast is like, you know, interviews, but this is just like a monologue. And she, it's a little bit of like self-help and kind of like how to get out of your way. And I think as a solo GP, um, an entrepreneur. It's always like, you know, how do I, how do I motivate myself? How do I communicate to founders, shareholders, my team um, in a way that's collaborative? 
the other podcast that has inspired me professionally, um, people always ask me who was your mentor or who is your mentor in venture. And I didn't really have any for a long time. Um, and so I incessantly mis- listened to Harry Stebbings, um, 20 minute VC. And, uh, one day it'd be awesome to be on his podcast with crazy folks like Reed Hoffman and like, you know, Mark Benioff and all those, uh, Titans. But, um, you know, as, as a venture investor, like cannabis is a different industry, similar business models. Right. So I'm trying to, if I'm doing like enterprise, like B2B software investments, I'm going to want to listen to, um, you know, the venture fund managers that specialize in that sector and kind of take two decades of their learnings and apply it to my industry. So, um, those are my two picks. No, totally. Thanks for uh, thanks for these. Love, love, love 20 Minute VC. It's a wonderful podcast. And do you fucking mind? I'll have to check that one out. That's great. Yeah, it's a good it's a good name. Um, yeah, it's a good but, name. But uh, and uh, also growing list of podcasts uses consumer VC, obviously. <laughs> Helene, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I um, I'm always super excited to share more about this plant. Um, it's done a lot of wonders for me as being an athlete and uh, looking for alternative ways to not just constantly take pharmaceuticals. Um, so, uh, I hope my, I hope your listeners got a lot of education. There's a lot to unpack in that one. No, totally. Totally. I, I think that they did for sure. For sure. Thanks for listening everyone. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Helene. Helene, thanks again so much for coming on the pod. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really appreciate it. So how also should, um, one think about which platform uh, to choose when it comes to running their portfolio. Because for example, like we saw like Assure go down last year. Um, and I know that investors that I talked to were like very, very nervous of even like new platforms that are that are starting because because that kind of had a, a bit of a chain reaction. Um, how How is uh, Vobin, why is Vobin like pretty well positioned, do, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, based on the current market, counterparty risk is very real, uh, even with SVB, uh, you know, uh, in, in the recent days. So yeah, being very mindful of, you know, who you're working with, especially with investments, uh, that's going to be held for a long period of time is very important. Uh, very unfortunate scenario with Assure where they went under and they were one of the leading, um, you know, SPV providers, uh, in the market. Um, I would say, you know, how we differentiate ourselves and, you know, how we provide comfort is, you know, we're a Carta company and Carta has multiple different revenue streams from equity management, venture capital, total compensation, as well as Carta liquidity. So it's not purely, you know, the SPV and VC fund model um, that they're relying on. It's a holistic package of products that they have. They're extremely well capitalized uh, from that side as well. Um, and so, yeah. Um, with the backing of Carta, you know, we do have, you know, uh, resources from a large organization who's been around for 10 plus years uh, to provide additional comfort to, you know, the long term investments that we structure uh, through our product. That's awesome. That's great. And, and how, um, how can you sign up to Voben if this is something that you're um, that you might be interested in, in, in doing or even getting started? Um, if it's like your first time 
um, experiencing any of this and just interested in investing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can definitely check us out on our website, www.vobon.io. Uh, alternatively, you know, feel free to reach out to me. My name's Gabriel.chin at vobon.io. Um, and, you know, happy to kind of walk you through the platform. Um, it's great. You know, there's a lot of people who are starting their angel investing journey and want to, you know, share the, share their deal flow with their own network. So it could be a small group of friends uh, who, you know, want to get into angel investing. It could be a large angel syndicate um, or angel network. Uh, yeah, we're happy to accommodate uh, the various angel investors. Thanks again for listening, folks. And again, if you're enjoying this podcast and enjoying the show, also recommend subscribing to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening.